Um, and when Pastor Brian asked me to present a working title for my sermon today, um, I've never done that before, and so I just kind of threw one off at the top of my head, a loss and gain. And then I showed up here today, and I looked at it on the bulletin. It says, Bryce Lowe, Philippians 3, loss and gain. I thought, oh no, I sound like a nutritionist or some kind of exercise coach or something here to tell you about how to lose like your spiritual fat and gain spiritual muscle or something. I thought, that's not at all what I'm going to talk about today. I feel like I was misleading. Um, but then I thought, well, I do have food for you all, and it's the Word of God. Um, so that's what we're going to turn our attention to this morning um, in Philippians 3. So I invite you to please take up a Bible and turn to that chapter in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Um, and I'm going to organize our thoughts around today um, three headings. What Paul lost what Paul gained, and then something at the end about life after death. So at Philippians 3, let me pray for us, and then we'll open up the text. Lord God, I pray that you would lead us today to the cross, and that following in the wake of your Son, who lived and died and rose again, we might die and be raised to new life. In Jesus' name. I want to ask you a question this morning. I wonder when the last time was that you had a crisis of faith. Um, maybe you're someone that finds themselves in and out of crises of faith all the time, or maybe um, it's been years since your last major crisis. But I wonder if you can think this morning about a time when you felt your life was going in one direction and you had a pretty reasonable idea of who God was, who you were, and what your place was in the world, um, and then all of a sudden you collided head on with something in your life um, that made you stop in your tracks, or it made you feel like your life collapsed, um, and you had a crisis. I think sometimes these happen at moments of like great catastrophe or cataclysm in our lives where we feel like we've lost a loved one, um, or we've run into some kind of major disappointment. Um, maybe this was 10 years ago for you when you lost your job, and it was up to you to provide for your family, and you had no idea how you were going to do that. Or maybe it was um, just a couple years ago when you are battling for custody with your kids, at a place where you never thought that you would end up in your marriage. Uh, maybe you've lost someone recently. Or maybe even just this morning, it was something smaller where you're trying to hustle your kids out the door um, and you start wondering, what am I doing right now? I'm trying to get these kids' socks on. I'm trying to make sure that their breath smells good. Uh, and we're all going to go to some building somewhere where we all face the same direction and sing a bunch of songs and watch some guy stand in a bucket and talk for 30 minutes about something and then shake hands and go home. Um, what am I doing? Why am I going to church? What is this for? Um, that's a kind of crisis of faith. It's a small one, but it's a real one. Um, and if you feel like you're in the midst of one right now, or if you're somebody that has had crises of faith, um, welcome to the church. This is where you belong. Uh, the church is full of people who have had crises of faith. I think that's what part of what defines a Christian is someone who had their life going in one direction for a long time, or thought they were reasonably comfortable with what they thought about God, or what they thought about themselves, and then the bottom falls out. And all of a sudden, you end up on the road somewhere blinded, wondering who you are and where you're going. Um, and that's what our reading is about here in Philippians. Um, Paul is someone who had a crisis of faith. Um, and so I invite you to open up the Bible and turn to chapter 3, verse 3, and I'll begin reading from there. And I think if we read about Paul's crisis of faith and we understand what's going on in his life, we might encounter something similar today. So verse 3, look out for the dogs, look out for those evildoers, Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, 
I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so here there's all these converging contexts and subtexts going around in this passage, but um, let's just catch ourselves up to speed on who Paul was and what he means when he's talking about these, um, this whole resume here. So Paul was a Pharisee. And if you remember anything from the Gospels about uh, Christ's opponents in Judaism, they usually came from the Pharisees, who were these very devout religious leaders who were constantly needling and poking and prodding Christ with all these different theological quandaries and questions, trying to figure out who is this man who's um, performing these ridiculous miracles and claiming um, some kind of unique relationship with God the Father. And so if you think of Paul, think of the Pharisees from the Gospels. And Paul never interacted with Christ um, in Christ's earthly ministry, but that's the same kind of um, sect that Paul came from, these really scrupulous, ultra-devout religious leaders. Um, and so that's who we have in mind right now when Paul's going through this list. In fact, he's so um, certain of his um, excellent record that he talks about it all the time. He says he's not boasting about it because he's not boasting about it. Ultimately, his point is um, to undermine it. But Paul makes reference in here, in Galatians, and in Acts, about his devout um, life under Judaism, trying to um, find some way of making himself right with God under the old system. So look at what he says here. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, if he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he runs down this whole list, which is basically a resume of everything he did to put himself right with God. He was born to godly parents who circumcised him properly, which is not really something he did because he would have been eight days old, but that's to show that he came from a godly family. His, he, had, he was born to the right family. He was born in the right part of the kingdom, which is a southern part. He was born to the favored tribe of Benjamin, and he was like this super Hebrew, and he goes on and on. This is a highly impressive list of accomplishments for anyone in the first century AD in Judaism. Every single item that Paul lists here is like a military medal or some kind of scholarship or some membership in some high-end city club somewhere. Everything, even Paul saying that he's a persecutor of the church, that's actually not a bad thing under Judaism. Because imagine, if Paul was right, and the Pharisees were right, that these people, um, these Jews are going around worshiping someone who claims he's God and he's not, the right thing to do is to round them up and bring them to justice, because that's blasphemy. And so he's not so much like a bounty hunter going on this like renegade trip to persecute some people. Um, in Paul's eyes, he's acting as like a sheriff, going around and collecting up outlaws and bringing them to justice. So, I think this doesn't translate exactly, but you can think of Paul um, something like someone who is um, today raised in the church, you know, he's baptized as an infant, um, raised in some kind of middle-class family, graduates valedictorian from high school, and then goes to MIT and graduates top of his class and founds some kind of Fortune 500 company that's like carbon neutral and spends three quarters of his income lowering the price of insulin, um, and he has, you know, one wife and seven kids, and he gives regularly to his church. And that's like Paul's resume here. That's what he's trying to show you, this like very glittering, beautiful, illustrious record of all his virtue and merit. Um, and that's what everybody would want. Everyone would want to be a part of that. But what does Paul think of it? He says it's loss, all of it, every last item that Paul could claim is a loss. In fact, he says so three times. But whatever gain I had, in verse seven, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So the word for loss in Greek carries with it this connotation of something that hurts you or is a detriment to you. It's not just like this neutral thing, like in chess, it's like, oh, that's a draw, or it all came out in the wash. It's like, no, it's a loss. You can imagine if you have a bakery or some kind of, I don't know if anyone here works in food service or something, but if you bake a whole bunch of loaves throughout the day and you get to the end of the day um, and you haven't sold like 10 loaves, you either have to throw them away or donate them somewhere because the next day they're no good, they're stale at that point. Um, that's a loss. Or if you are into gardening or something and you have all these peppers and these tomatoes and gourds and you walk outside one day and you find all of them infested with um, some kind of insect or pestilence or some kind of blight and you have to take the whole garden and raise it to the ground and just get back to dirt, that's loss. And that's what Paul is saying that um, he considers to be his entire resume of good works and everything that he could claim as merit to himself. And the ESV doesn't make this very clear but in verse 7, what Paul actually says is, but whatever were my gains, all these I counted as loss. That's multiple gains, like gains plural. Paul is saying that when he looks over his whole life and considers the multitude of his gains, which could be added up and put to his credit, you know, like when he itemizes everything on the list and says, well, I did this here, I was here at the right time, I didn't do this, I made sure I was really careful in this area. When he lines them all up, it tallies to, what the sum total is, is loss, one word. And um, in fact, just a few verses later, he calls it rubbish, which is a pretty wimpy way of translating skubala, which is the Greek word for excrement, which is food that passes through the body and then it's done away with. It's loathsome, stinks, you don't want to have anything to do with that. So everything good in Paul's life is something that flushes down the toilet and that you want to distance yourself from. That's what Paul thinks of, his own, of himself. And he's not talking about sin here. I mean, that goes without saying. I think there's no religion in the world that wouldn't say that. Like, everyone knows that the, the bad things you do are bad. And so most religions are just trying to get you to do better things more often than you do bad things. Paul's saying that even the good things that you're trying to do are worthless. He calls them scubala. He calls it excrement. So he's not talking about sin. He's talking about his medals, his scholarships, his memberships, his accolades. Everything can be summed up into one word, rubbish. What in the world would cause somebody to do that, to throw away all of their dignity, all their hard-earned merit, and all of their status. And many of you know the famous story of um, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to round up the Christians, to bring them back for um, trial and judgment. He has this, uh, what we would call today, a come-to-Jesus moment, where he sees the risen Christ on the road, and he falls to the ground and is left blind. And that's Paul's experience. Um, that's the moment when everything flipped for Paul and he started realizing that everything he'd gained, he counts as loss now. After the encounter, Paul saw his whole life as worthless compared to the new life that was given to him. His old life was a garment of fig leaves that needed to be replaced by animal skins. His old life was Cain's sacrifice of vegetables, and he had encountered the one true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Up to that point, Paul had been master of his own fate and captain of his own soul, and now he had met the master of providence and a captain of the world. Paul had been working on his project of self-justification, self-improvement, self-independency, self-sufficiency, and self-sanctification, and now he was stopped in his tracks by the all-consuming, terrifying, arresting, holy love made flesh in Jesus Christ. Maybe now he could have said with Job, 
Remember what Job said at the end? I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And with that background, verse 7 makes more sense to us. But whatever gains I had, these I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We might think, okay, that makes sense. So Paul was living a certain way under Judaism. You know, he was trying to um, do what we would call works-based righteousness the whole way up. And he's trying to, like, gain himself status with God. He meets Jesus, and then everything's leveled. He realizes, okay, well, um, I couldn't do it that way, but now my bank account is set at zero. Because um, it was in deficit. Jesus paid my debt. He got me to zero. And now I can start adding to it. Right Now, like, my merits mean something. Now my good works can mean something for me as I try to gain righteousness, as I grow in sanctification. Is that what he's talking about? Well, no. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice when he says, I count. The tense here matters, that I counted and I count, because that's what's happening in the original language. Paul's saying, before, when I was a Jew, when I was a Pharisee, I met Christ, and everything before then I counted as rubbish. But now, years later, Paul is saying, I count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. One commentator puts it this way. Paul came to the end of all his costly striving after acceptance before God through the simplicity of believing in Christ. But at the moment of writing, that experience was long past. It belonged to Far Off Day Road, on the way to Damascus. Had Paul no fresh testimony to offer? We notice that the present tense appears in verse 8. Verse 7 records that I counted. Verse 8 affirms that I count. It is really here, in fact, that Paul turns to explain what it means to glory in Christ Jesus. He has by now cleared every other potential subject of glory out of the way. All personal merit, all acquired virtue, all efforts after righteousness, all that would be to the glory of man is gone. Christ stands alone on the stage, the exclusive object of praise. How could everything still be lost for Paul? Has he made no spiritual progress? Has he been sanctified so little? Has he no gains to show for his labor in Christ all those years since Damascus as a missionary apostle? The answer lies here for us in comparing what Paul lost, which was his own self-justification, compared to what he gained, which is Christ and righteousness in Christ. So I've already talked about loss, now I want to talk about gain. Paul counts his whole list of gains to be worthless because of the one great gain that he has obtained, which is Jesus Christ. So here there's this movement that Paul's making from the many things to the one thing. There's one thing that Paul has now. To seek righteousness under the law, to justify yourself, you have to keep this impressive record of obedience all the time. You have to amass a whole collection of righteousness and keep, keep your proofs of diligence and discipline on hand so you can go to the boss and say, look at what I've done for you over the last quarter. This is what I've done, this is what I haven't done. See, you can like chart this steady progress of perfection upward, so give me a raise, because I earn it, I deserve it. So you have to amass a collection of things. If you're building your case before a judge, you have to have a really good case. You have to have far-ranging and thorough litigation. But Paul is saying that he's done away with all of that collecting and all of that hoarding and all of that amassing of proof that he's a good guy and you can trust him and that you ought, to, you ought to give him some kind of membership in the people of God. He's done away with that. He gives all of it up. Even now, he gives it up for one thing. Look at what he says in verse 8 and following. Indeed, I count 
So he's saying today, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what has Paul gained? He's gained one thing, or rather one person, Jesus Christ, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, and that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All these phrases are more or less just saying the same thing. Paul has moved from a life that was completely centered around himself to one that is entirely ordered around Christ. The sun has set on Paul's kingdom, and it rose again on Christ's kingdom. Paul shut his eyes on himself, and he opened his eyes on Christ. And that's all that there is for Paul now. There's only Christ. There's none of himself. I just want to pause for a moment and remind you how radical this is, because this is a crisis of faith that Paul has encountered here. Because he goes from faith in what? Faith in himself to faith in God. All of you here, deep in yourself, know that you need this and desperately need, even today, this kind of reorientation from self to Christ. I mean, think about it. Like just All of you came in here today with something that is weighing you down, with something that is burdening your conscience, something that's attached to you, that's killing you. Augustine of Hippo, this fourth century church father, had this way of talking about people that they were, he used this Latin phrase, incurvatus in se, which means curved in on yourself. The idea is um, this person who's, there's like a black hole in the middle of themselves, like this gravitational pull that's always attracting them back to themselves, and they're twisted and curled around and bent in on themselves. If that's us, if we're in a toxic relationship with our old self, that drags us deep into pits of misery from which we so badly need rescue, if that's us all the time, then we need something from the outside to come in and save us from ourselves. All of us return again and again to the excrement of our sin, obviously, but to the excrement of our good works, hoping to find something there that flatters us, that gives us some cause to have confidence in the flesh, to tell us the sweet lie that, we're really okay, we're in control, and we have some moral improvement or some kind of success to boast of or show our friends so we can feel less ashamed of ourselves and less insecure in who we are by ourselves. All of us today need that part of ourselves to be shaken to the core. We need a crisis of faith that shatters that tendency in our hearts because it's the old self, it's present with us until we die and we constantly need that to die. We need that part to die so we can be raised to life. We are the strong man who is Lord over an imaginary house, and we need Christ the thief to come in and bind the strong man so we can plunder our house and take away our idols. If this is our condition, we need that crisis of faith. We need to encounter the risen Son of God and be blinded and be killed and raised to life again. And friends, to gain Christ is to have all your idols all those things that make you bend inward on yourself taken away 
It's to have your kingdom overthrown and Christ's kingdom reign. It is God taking you off your throne and restoring you to your creatureliness. So you don't have to be king over your own life anymore. It's moving from a thousand anxious attempts at self-justification and self-satisfaction into the worship and adoration of the one true God. It is moving from an inheritance of death to the imperishable inheritance which is ours in Christ. That's why Paul counts everything as loss. Because, friends, if you've gained Christ, what else could you gain? Everything else is lost compared to that. As a member of Christ's body, there is nothing left to gain. There is no labor left to perform, no debt to pay, no balance to restore. Paul's account, in Christ clearing Paul's debt, his account isn't set to zero. It's stuffed full. And incidentally, this is what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of <clears throat> double imputation. Because um, there's this idea, this is reality, and this is the language you use to describe the reality, that on the cross, um, Christ is there suffering for our sins. And that's something that all of us can understand and relate to. It's like, okay, I put my sins onto Christ on the cross, and they're dealt with, and justice um, in God's wrath is expiated and propitiated there. It's a two-way street. What do I contribute to my salvation? I contribute all of my sin. What do I get out of my salvation? All of Christ's obedience. So justification, you can say it's just, I'm treated just as if I never sinned, but that's only half of it. You're treated just as if you always obeyed. Christ's obedience is credited to your account. And so if you are in Christ, if you have been baptized and put your faith in Christ, you are at this very moment in perfect standing with the Father. Because when he sees you, he doesn't just see a, zero, a bank account at zero, he sees the obedience of his son. To be found in Christ is what Paul talks about in verse 9, where he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So to be found in him is to be grafted into the healthy, strong olive tree, to be a member of the body, to be sprinkled with blood, to be clothed in animal skins, to wash your clothes white in the blood of the lamb. And if you want to read more about the doctrine of double imputation, you can refer to that most holy and sanctified uh, deuterocanonical book, the Westminster Confession, uh, Article 11. That's where they talk about it, in case you're wondering. So my friends, if you've gained Christ, what else is there for you to gain? Even if you live another 60 years right now and dedicate yourself to perfecting your marriage, raising your children right, giving money to the needy, honing your spiritual walk with the Lord, can you possibly add to what Christ has already given you? You have gained Christ, and in Christ you have gained favor with God, the kingdom of heaven, perfect rest with your creator, infinite satisfaction, and the hope of everlasting peace after death. What more could you possibly gain by your own efforts? So in my tradition, right before the offertory, um, and actually this is almost verbatim what Pastor Brian said too, um, we say this little call and response. And I'm gonna teach it to you now, so you get to have a little bit of participation. So at the offertory, when the plates are up here, the minister says, this is from 1 Chronicles 2, or uh, no, 1 Chronicles 29. The minister says, all things come from you, O Lord. And the people say, and of your own have we given you. So I'll say it. All things come from you, O Lord. I'm very proud of you all. You have all done so well. But what is that saying? What is that teaching you? All things come from God. 
And whatever we give back to God is his own. It's nothing that I generated outside of Christ. And so that means all of our righteousness too. We give nothing to the Lord that he's never given us. We were what? What was our condition before Christ? We were dead in our trespasses and wickedness in which we once walked. Dead means dead. It means unable to give anything. If we have life now and we give life back to God, it's only because he gave it to us first. Whatever we give to him in our, um, our attempts at righteousness and our attempts to conform to the image of Christ, it's nothing compared to what he's given us already. So that's something about loss, which is what? The loss of our own self-justification and our own claim to fame. And that's something about gain, which is gaining Christ. But I want to try to drive that home a little bit more because I want that to take on flesh and actually be a part of our lives. So I'm going to spend the last little bit of the sermon talking about life after death. So if we, who are in Christ, cannot add anything to what we've gained, what does life look like for us now? Thankfully, Paul gives us a picture, and this is what I want to focus on for the rest of the day. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So if you were to take a moment now and um, think about this, if, if someone were to come up to you and say, um, what's your goal for, um, well, what's your week look like? Or what's the rest of 2023 look like for you? Or do you have, like, are you kind of hoping to do something in 2024 that um, you didn't manage to get done in this year? Um, you know, that happens all the time in business because in business the idea is, okay, here's where we are, here's where we need to be, here's everything we need to do to make sure that that happens. Um, and what if someone were to ask you about that in your Christian life? Where are you now? Where do you hope to be? And what are the things you need to do to get there? Um, what's your plan for the rest of your life? That's not a daunting question at all. Well, what is it that Paul seeks to obtain? If we were to ask Paul that question, what do we want? What does he want out of his Christian life? What does it mean for him to be perfect? What does he want to make his own? What Paul wants more than anything, what he has dedicated the rest of his life to pursuing, is resurrection. You see, Paul is not talking here about physical death or bodily death here. He's talking about spiritual death and spiritual resurrection. In all of Paul's epistles, he considers the most important death you go through is the one that's represented in baptism, which is death to the old spirit and the birth of the new spirit, represented through that sacrament of baptism. For Paul, if you have been baptized and you have received new life through faith in Jesus Christ, you've already died. What happens later to your body is important and significant, and it's like a key change in a song, but it's not nearly as significant for Paul as the death you've already died in baptism. The most important death is behind you, and you are, at this very moment, as a baptized, believing Christian, living in the afterlife. That's why I've talked about this, is life after death. How are we supposed to live? That's what the Christian life is about. It's about life after death. You've already died, and the life you are living now will continue forever, although it will be modulated in heaven, it will be perfected in heaven. So when Paul talks about trying to make resurrection his own, when that's his singular focus for the rest of his Christian life, he's talking about seeking to live as somebody who's already died and already been raised back to life. 
So let's listen to Romans 6. This was part of our call to worship this morning. What shall we say then, Paul is saying, as someone who can't add anything to what Christ has already given him, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, that's all of us here today, all baptized believing Christians, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you... Tabernacle Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In this passage from Romans 6, as well as Philippians, Paul understands the Christian life as resurrection from the death of sin. So I want to clarify something here. When Paul says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, he's not sitting here saying, ooh, like, I really hope that if I kind of work out my life properly, I'll get to go to heaven. He's not talking about that. He's saying, by any means possible, he's saying, I will take whatever road it takes to experience resurrection in this life. I mean, that's what we all need to say, by whatever means necessary. Because I don't know the many ways I need a resurrection in my life. And none of you know all the ways that Christ needs to sanctify you and renovate your heart. And so Paul is saying, Lord, if you will take me down a path of loss, of feeling like my status is stripped away from me, of feeling like I am alienated from my friends and from my family, I will go down that road. Only let me see some resurrection. Let me become more and more like the risen Son of God. And it's painful. It hurts. It feels like death when we, but it's really resurrection because it grieves us to lose something to which we hold so dearly because we want to cling to death. That's our natural disposition, to cling to death in just that one tiny area instead of attaining the resurrection from the dead in all areas of our lives. But even as we experience death every day, even as we continue to find our idols crucified on the cross, even though we groan as the body of sin is mortified by our loving Father's gentle discipline, we can rest assured that we who are in Christ have already died and we've already been raised. Those who have passed through baptism and put their faith in God are living in life after death. The promised land has been cleared of all enemies. David has slain the giant, and the Philistines are on the run. The last sacrifice has been offered. The kingdom of heaven has come. The last days are upon us. As Easter hymn puts it, the strife is over, the battle done, the victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. So my fellow saints, my dear friends who have been raised from the dead, how shall we live in this life after death? I think the way that we live is modeling ourselves after Christ. And that's, I think, what Paul talks about here in Philippians 3. 
The world we left behind was a world of little self-words, self-justification, self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-preservation, self-worship. This is the world where we all become little gods over pathetic empty kingdoms, and we're all like little Ebenezer Scrooges who are constantly penny-pinching and trying to keep a record of all the things that we've done that we can be proud of and we can claim to ourselves. And friends, every good thing that we have in life, our marriages, families, jobs, talents, services, our worship, our careers, our time, our resources, all of these things are always ready and able to be turned into something of the kingdom of self, something that I own and I possess and clutch close to me that I can be proud of. I don't mean this in some kind of stern, finger-wagging language of, now, don't have too much of a good thing because you might turn it into an idol. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that this is the nature of the old man, is to take things and possess them and to turn them into something that makes us feel secure and self-sufficient. <clears throat> I will speak confessionally for a moment. So if I'm a broke seminarian getting ready to be married, and it feels virtually impossible for me to not make money an idol. I am keenly aware of how much I need it and how little of it I have, um, and my impulse is to put on my glasses and open Excel and create a spreadsheet of how much money I need, all the sources of revenue that I can have, and how I plan to get all that money, how I plan to keep all that money and um, stop spending so much money, and how to plan for future contingencies like children. Um, Daddy, why'd you name me future contingency? Um, but yeah, just baby names in case you're interested. Um, what am I looking for when I do this? If I'm seized with a certain anxiety about money and about my future, how I'm gonna provide, what am I looking for when this is my response? To immediately go to trying to solve the problem. I'm looking for security. I'm looking for some kind of sense of assurance that I can provide, that my wife and children can look to me for their food to feel like I'm the master of the ship, and I know where it's going. I'm not secure. I never have been. I just know the one who is secure. The house is only good, not because the construction of it, the third floor is so great, but because it's built on the rock. I want to build on the rock. I'm not the pilot of my ship. I'm a member of God's ark, and he has saved me from the flood, and he is the captain of my ship. God provides everything for me. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. That's everything. There's not a single good thing in my life. No virtue, no dime, no friend, nothing in my life that is a result of my own effort. It is all a grace from God. Lord, grant that I may not make an idol out of stewarding my finances. How about this one? Did you know that you can idolize your own sanctification? It's true. If the question, if you answer the question of what do you want, like where do you want to grow most in your spiritual walk with the Lord, or how are you hoping to grow? If you answer that with something that doesn't have Christ in the exact center of it, that's an idol. If we are more interested in feeling holy and virtuous and righteous than in loving Christ, we've made an idol out of our sanctification. We've dethroned Christ and have set ourselves, our purified, sanctified selves, all cleaned up and uh, ready to be presented before God. We set ourselves on that throne as the most important thing in our lives. So how do we not do that? How do we move from worship of self to worship of God? Well, I hinted at it earlier, but it's in modeling ourselves after Christ. And I don't mean primarily like the what would Jesus do question. Like, well, I just behave more like Christ, or I follow his teaching more. 
That's good, but that's not what Paul's talking about here, because Paul's talking about resurrection, which implies death. That's how we model ourselves after Christ. I think modeling our life after Christ is like becoming like him in his death, as Paul says here, and sharing in his sufferings. The cure for idolatry is not trying harder to be less idolatrous. That's just getting caught in the same cycle again of works and righteousness under the law. The cure for idolatry isn't trying harder. It's death. It's to, to die and to be raised to life. That's why the cross is our symbol of our faith, because that's the thing we keep interacting with day in and day out. You have your death and resurrection that's figured in baptism. You have your ultimate death and resurrection that happens at the end of your life. But every day, like today, when you walk out of the church, that's your life right now, is death and resurrection. That's what Paul is singularly focused on attaining. The cure for idolatry is to die again and again and for Christ to raise you. And it really does feel like death to open your hand and let go of that idolatrous grudge that you've been holding against your husband for 15 years. It feels like death to let go of the idol of finding that dream job that finally satisfies you the way you wish worked had always satisfied you. It feels like death to let go of the way you wish your body looked. It feels like death to realize you may not know the answer to all the questions that you ask of God in this life. It feels like death, but it's the death of your own tiny, narrow, cramped kingdom of self. And it's the life that's breaking in the resurrection of God, coming in and initiating his kingdom. What is dying is the old you, which was paying rent to a hundred landlords who demanded your adoration and obedience. What is coming alive in you is the humble gardener who awakes free in God's kingdom, free from the burden of his self, free to labor without a thought for himself, and with all the love in the world for his master and his master's children. But one thing I do, says Paul, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget yourself. Forget your deadly idolatrous merits and your good deeds. Your collections of righteousness and honor and badges and laurels and prizes and trophies. Forget it all. Open your hand and let them fall to the ground. What should you do instead? I like the King James here a little bit better because in the ESV, it says straining forward to what lies ahead. And for me, um, that conjures this image of Christ is always receding from me behind the horizon. I'm always hastening. I'm with like perspiration and bated breath. I'm running after him. I'm straining for him. That's not what Paul is saying here. What you should do is you should reach forth unto what lies ahead. Drop the mirror that shows you your own reflection and stretch out your hand into what is right in front of you, what has been given to you. And what is ahead of you? One thing lies ahead of you. Many things lay behind you, one thing lies ahead of you. One goal, one prize, one high calling, Jesus Christ. You who were once spread across the whole world in confusion and darkness, looking for scraps of gold to decorate yourself and feel proud about, you are now brought into orbit around the single, central, glowing heartbeat of the universe, Jesus Christ. If Christ is all that matters, one response would be to say that, well, then nothing that I do matters. 
and to go live a forgetful life of just like merrily going on your way and not really thinking about what you're doing. But that's dissatisfying. I mean, I don't think anyone here would want to say that. Um, who would want to live that way, knowing that they were just um, living transiently and shallowly? So it's not, since Christ is all that matters, therefore nothing I do matters. It's instead, it's because Christ is all that matters, and because I've gained Christ, everything else matters. Your marriage matters, not because it's so great to have a perfect marriage this side of heaven, but your marriage matters because it's a way to draw nearer to the heart of Christ, to encounter Christ in your marriage. Being a good manager of your employees matters not so that you can have a little plaque on a wall or people will remember you for like two years after you're gone or to leave a legacy of good management. That's not why being a good manager matters. It matters because in being a good manager, you encounter Christ and you're transformed into his image. Wrestling with temptation matters not so that you can purify yourself or congratulate yourself on your self-discipline and self-made success, but only because in struggling against temptation, you will be thrown onto the mercy and sufficiency of who? Of Christ, the only pure one, the only one who ever truly resisted. We have gained Christ, therefore everything matters, but it only matters because of Christ. Reach forth unto Christ in your marriage. Reach forth unto Christ in your struggle with lust. Reach forth unto Christ in your anxiety for the future, in your depression, in your confusion, in your loneliness, in your fear, in your addiction, in your despair. In all these things, Christ is present. He's present in death and resurrection, and all these things matter because they are places where you will encounter the risen Christ, just as Paul encountered him on the road to Damascus. Friends, I think we are all like Martha, busy with much serving. We are concerned and anxious over many things, but one thing is necessary. Let us choose the better portion, which will not be taken from us. Jesus Christ died for you and has saved you from your own narrow and tiny kingdom. Your self-reign has ended. The, the kingdom you have built has crumbled. The old man is left blind and dead on the road to Damascus, and the new man has been born with eyes that have seen the risen Christ. You have already died, and you have already been raised to life, and you are a servant in the eternal kingdom of heaven. You are alive. Christ has claimed you as his, and he will never let you go. So rejoice, my friends. And again I say, rejoice. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.